It's a privilege to be with you all this evening. Our scripture passage for tonight comes out of Matthew chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 18 through 27. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. But before we read there, let's bow in prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, we give you thanks again tonight that you are the God who has spoken. Lord, you dwell in light that is inaccessible. And yet you have been pleased to reveal yourself to your people. You have revealed yourself most perfectly in the face of the Lord Jesus. And you have also revealed yourself in your word. You have spoken and you have caused that speaking to be written down in order that even tonight we can read the very word of your mouth. Now, Lord, we give you thanks for the promise in your word that when your word goes forth out of your mouth that it shall not return unto you void, but that it will accomplish the purposes that you have intended. O oh, Lord, be pleased even now in our midst to realize that promise and to get glory through your word to the risen Glorified Lord Jesus. Do what we pray. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you Wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Amen. Now, we weren't able to read them this evening, but in the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 8, Jesus had been doing some amazing things. In those first 17 verses, Jesus had healed a leper, He had healed the centurion's servant. He had healed Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus was doing astounding things. And if you move back even further than that, in the closing verses of Matthew chapter 7, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, the Scriptures had noted that Jesus was teaching with startling authority. You know, at this point, Jesus, to say the least, is making an impression on people. He's healing He's teaching with an authority they've never heard before. Jesus is making an impression on people. As we see in the passage that we just read, 
men and women were flocking to him. They were wanting to follow Jesus. And at this point in his ministry, with his following growing larger and larger, more and more disciples every day, Jesus turns his attention to the cost of discipleship. You see, Jesus knows that being a disciple is hard. And he wants his people to have considered the hardships that will come with following him. He wants them to have held in balance the tribulation and the affliction, the hardship of discipleship, over against the wonderful blessings of discipleship. So that when hardships come, his disciples won't be shaken by it. They will already have considered the cost. And they will have already determined that the glory of the Christ whom they follow is far greater than the affliction of following him. Jesus wants the people coming to him to count the cost before they follow him. And that's what we find him doing in our passage this morning, this after this evening. In Matthew chapter 8, in verses 18 through 27, we find that to be a disciple of Jesus, you must make yourself nothing and give yourself entirely to the God who is with you. That's the cost of discipleship. And it's a cost that makes discipleship not onerous, but glorious. Now, the first thing that we need to see in our passage this evening is that to be a disciple of Jesus, you must make yourself nothing. You know, look at verses 18 through 20 of the passage. Beginning in verse 18, Matthew writes this. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now in verse 18 there, we learn that great multitudes are gathering around Jesus. They've heard about his miracles. They've heard about his amazing teaching. They perhaps have witnessed one or the other of those. And they're gathering around Jesus. And with this crowd gathering around him, Jesus Gave orders, the passage says. Meaning that he instructed his disciples to make preparations to, as it says, go over to the other side. Now at this point, Jesus and his disciples are in the town of Capernaum. Now you see that back up in verse 5. And Capernaum sits on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So when Jesus says that he wants to go over to the other side... He means that he wants to get on a boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a large body of water. Crossing that sea would put Jesus beyond the reach of these multitudes who are gathering around him. So as the boat is being prepared for Jesus to make this sea crossing, this multitude of people, they're faced with a real decision. Either they watch Jesus sail away and they go back to their normal lives. Or they try to convince Jesus to allow them on the boat with him. This is a definitive moment of choosing either to follow Jesus or to stay behind. In verse 19, we meet a man who decided he wants to follow with Jesus. In verse 19, Matthew tells us that a scribe came up to Jesus 
and enthusiastically told Jesus of his desire to follow him across the sea. The scribe comes up and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus' response to this man is bracing. In verse 20, Jesus replies to the scribe, this man who's wanting to come with him across the sea, and he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, in one sense, Jesus' meaning there is rather clear. You know, Jesus' ministry, particularly from this point forward, it was an itinerant ministry. He would daily move from place to place. He would rely on the hospitality of others uh, to care for him and to have places to stay. Jesus literally did not have a place to lay his head. You know, foxes and birds, these common animals, they had homes. They had places to which they knew that they could return. But Jesus won't. Going across the sea with Jesus, it wouldn't be like joining a celebrity on an extravagant tour. Following Jesus would be hard. It would mean that you would have to leave behind everything. But it seems to me that there's even more to what Jesus is saying here than simply this renunciation of material comforts. You notice how Jesus describes himself in verse 20. In verse 20, he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, as many of you may know, this title, Son of Man, it's a very important title in the Scriptures. In fact, while Jesus was on this earth, he used this title more than any other title to refer to himself. It was sort of Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself, if you want to think about it like that. But if Jesus liked this title so much, what did it mean? Well, in the Old Testament book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7 at verses 13 and 14, Daniel had this intense vision about the end of the age, about that time when God will judge all the earth. And in that vision, there is this divine figure called the Son of Man. And this Son of Man is given an everlasting and a universal kingdom. The Son of Man was a divine figure who ruled all of the earth for all of the ages. And Jesus is calling himself that Son of Man. He's the one who rules all the earth. He's the one who will come upon the clouds of heaven to judge all the nations of the earth. You know, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 26 at verse 64, Jesus himself makes it plain that that's what he meant when he used the title Son of Man. He was discreetly, almost imperceptibly, referring to the fact that he was the radiant God who rode on the clouds. That he was the one whose dominion extended over all the ages and over all the nations. He was that son of man. The one whose glory had irradiated the dreams of Daniel. Now with all of that truth that's packed into that one title, the son of man. Look at verse 20 again. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
You know, certainly Jesus is referring to material deprivation, but he's speaking of so much more than that. He's speaking of what we find in Philippians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul says that at the incarnation, in the coming in the flesh of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God made himself nothing. The God whose glory, in Isaiah chapter 6, had made the pillars of the heavenly temple to tremble as he was being encircled by angels who couldn't even look upon his searing holiness. That unapproachable God had come to earth and he was homeless. The one who had formed all the earth, all of the earth being formed by the word of his power, he had less to call his own than foxes and birds whom he had spoken into existence. While remaining fully and completely God, Jesus had laid aside all of his visible glory, all of the visible privileges and prerogatives of who he was. He'd made himself nothing. And when our passage this evening, Jesus makes it painfully evident to this enthusiastic scribe that to follow after him, to be his disciple, you must take on his deprivation. And when we tonight realize the enormity of that deprivation, when we realize that Jesus had made himself nothing, we realize that his disciples must make themselves nothing too. Now you'll notice in the passage, Matthew doesn't tell us what the scribe said in response to Jesus' reply. And most likely the scribe's enthusiasm was deflated. You know, he remained on the sea's shore as the Son of God sailed away. You know, certainly the silence of the scriptures here leave that impression. But the lack of the scribe's response, it also leaves Jesus' words tonight what they were to this scribe on the shores of the sea. They confront us as an unanswered challenge. If you desire to follow after Jesus, you must make yourself nothing. You know, oftentimes it seems to me that one of the greatest impediments to discipleship is a deep-seated sense of personal rights. We all think that we have rights. We have the right to be happy, we have the right for our lives to turn out precisely as we had imagined they would turn out when we were 16 years old. We have the right to material prosperity. We have the right to dictate how we use our time and how we use our energy and how we use our resources. We think of ourselves as men and women who have certain rights, who have a right to certain things. And when following Jesus means laying down those rights, when discipleship means giving up freedoms that we think ought to be ours, we protest that that's beneath us. It's unfair. We're being asked to give up things that one ought not be asked to give up. But then we see Jesus, the Son of God, who for innumerable ages have been encircled by angels shouting, Holy, Holy, Holy. We see Him standing on the shore of a sea with not even a home to call His own. And what Jesus wants us to realize is that if we are to be his disciples, we must lay down our rights and we must lay down our pride 
then we must be humble. Even as the Son of Man with no place to lay His head is humble. To be a disciple of Jesus, you must make yourself nothing. As we press forward in the passage, we see that that's not all. To be a disciple of Jesus, you not only have to make yourself nothing, but you must give yourself entirely to Him. You look at verses 21 and 22. Beginning in verse 21, we read this. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You know, no sooner had Jesus given his sobering reply to the enthusiastic scribe than he was approached by another man. Verse 21 refers to this man as another of his disciples. And here, Matthew is using this word disciple in a very general sense. He doesn't mean one of the twelve disciples. He means disciple in the sense of someone who had followed Jesus, who'd come down to the seashore. Someone who even, we see, has an interest in continuing to follow Jesus. This man comes up to Jesus He asks if Jesus will postpone his voyage across the sea just long enough for him to bury his father. So that he can do that and then accompany Jesus across to the other side. That's a request that may well hit home for some of you. You Burying a parent, seeing to the very last needs of a parent's physical body. You're showing the, the sorrow and the respect for that person, through that care. These are important tasks. They're tasks that sit right next to our hearts. In fact, in biblical times, the eldest son was legally obligated to do these things for his parents. The man in our passage has asked Jesus to delay his departure long enough for him to fulfill his duty to show his devotion to his father. And according to Jewish regulations at the time, this was a process that was forbidden from taking any more than 24 hours. This wouldn't be a long delay. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus tells the man to follow him. And to let those who are spiritually dead, those who show their spiritual deadness by remaining behind rather than going with the Lord of life, to let those who are spiritually dead tend to the burial of those who are physically dead. Those are hard words. Rather than doing his duty, paying his respects to the man who had raised him from a child, this man was to leave his father... And to follow after a man whom he had known for only a relatively short amount of time. These words are agonizing. But we can't avoid what Jesus says here. This man has come to Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. Yet there's one commitment. There's one commitment that's nestled not only in his heart. But that's nestled in his very identity. This man is the dead man's son. It's part of who he is. There's this one commitment that he must fulfill before he can follow Jesus. And Jesus says, no. If you follow Jesus, 
It has to be because He is your commitment. Not because you simply already have addressed all of the other commitments that come before Him. Jesus demands that His people put Him first before all of their other commitments. For a disciple of Jesus, there must be nothing no commitment, no obligation, no loyalty, no bond of affection, nothing that has priority over Jesus, that has priority over service in His kingdom. You must give yourself entirely to Jesus. He must be your highest, greatest priority, so great a priority that if serving Him means gathering up your tears, leaving your father's casket, not going to your father's funeral, to speak in our terms, You'll do it. Now does Jesus hold that place in your heart this evening? Is serving Jesus and worshiping Jesus the indisputable central priority in all your life? Is it what determines how you use your time? Is it what determines how you use your resources? How you make decisions about your future? How you judge your current situation? Now, I suspect that for many of us, our passage this morning has reached into our hearts and plucked out precisely our foremost idol. For so many of us, if we're honest, we love our families more than we love Jesus. It's our families who determine how we use our time. It's our families, the commitment to which often keeps us from the worship of God. Commitments to family keep us from doing what we know God's will for us is. The fear of the disapproval of our family makes us shrink from an obedience to God that might seem out of place or strange or excessive. When our family is in sin, is in rebellion against God, we make excuses for our family. So often and in so many different ways, the reactions of our hearts reveal that our loyalty, our allegiance, our great animating affection lies with our family and not with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, families are wonderful. It's right, it's biblical for us to be loyal to our families and to be submissive to our families you know, very often it's through our families and through our duties to our families that God shows us His will. And outside of Christ, families are perhaps God's greatest gift to His people. But that also makes them one of the most devious idols of our hearts. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you must give yourself entirely to Him. You know, by His grace... And in accordance with His covenant, God very often works through families. And so loyalty to God and loyalty to family, they very often are indistinguishable. But they are different. And Jesus demands that He be first in the hearts of His people. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you must give yourself entirely to Him. He must be your life, not just a part of your life. Now again, Jesus has given us a very hard word here. But he doesn't leave us to stagger under the blow of what it costs to follow him. Yes, 
following Jesus, it costs you your rights. It costs you your freedom, your pride. Yes, it costs you your other commitments, your loyalties. But that is a glorious price to pay. To be a disciple of Jesus, you must make yourself nothing and give yourself entirely to the God who is with you. And we see the majesty of that in verses 23 through 27 of the passage. Look with me there. Uh, Beginning in verse 23, we read this. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? In these verses, after Jesus has spoken with various individuals who wanted to accompany him across the Sea of Galilee, and had challenged them about that desire, we see that he and his true disciples, the one whom he has chosen, all of them finally get on this boat, and they begin their journey to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. But while they're in the midst of that journey, this sudden storm comes up. Now, sudden storms aren't abnormal on the Sea of Galilee, but this one must have been horrendous. Verse 24 says that the boat was swamped with the waves. You get a picture of this boat almost overwhelmed by huge waves, heaving all around it, whipped by this vicious wind. Evidently, the situation is so dire that the disciples, they think they're about to die. Now, back in chapter 4 of Matthew, Matthew had told us that at least four of these disciples are experienced fishermen. Fishermen who most likely had spent the better part of their lives fishing on this very Sea of Galilee, sailing through these sudden storms that would come up. And yet after entire lifetimes of seeing such storms, sailing through such storms, these men fear that this one is too much. This one's the end. And you can almost imagine that there's a vapor Of indignation with the disciples. This is a peril that has come upon the disciples because of their obedience to Jesus. It's obedience to Jesus that's gotten them in this predicament. You know, the man who had chosen his dead father over Jesus, his feet are on dry, solid ground. But the disciples, they'd follow Jesus. And that following, that obedience, it's about to kill them. It's the obeying of Jesus that's bringing this affliction. This storm is too much. And so these men, they run to Jesus, who was, Matthew almost points out in a a side sort of comment, Jesus who was asleep, sleeping through all this upheaval, The disciples run to Jesus and they cry out, Lord, save us. We're perishing. And what does Jesus say? He says, why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. Can you imagine? You know, through all the howling of the wind, the 
crashing of the waves, you hear this single voice. Why are you fearful? It would seem that everything about that moment battered your senses with why the disciples are fearful. They're fearful because of the storm. They're fearful because the boat is threatening to disintegrate under the punishment of the waves. They're fearful because when they look up to the sky, they see only towering waves, not stars. But no, Jesus says, they're fearful because their faith is small. Jesus repeatedly had told them that their Father in heaven was watching over them. He was caring for them. He would protect them. And their fear now shows that their faith in that care was small. After correcting his disciples, Jesus then does something amazing. He arises from where he was laying. He calls out to the screaming wind and the crushing waves. And instantly, there's calm. There is no wind. There are no waves. The deafening storm is silent. And in the silence of the glassy sea, this one question thunders in the minds of the disciples. Who can this be? Verse 27 says, that even the winds and the sea obey him. Now this is a rhetorical question of the first order. These men aren't inquisitively asking who this man is. Their minds are quaking at their own realization of who he is. He's God. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we read time and time again that it's God and God alone who commands the seas. It's God and God alone whose voice makes the water surge and whose voice makes the waters lie still. It's God whose will directs the winds. Jesus of Nazareth is God. This man who had been judged to be less important than someone else's dead father is the living God. And the disciples know it. You look closely at verse 25. And the disciples are in the midst of their panic. They're afraid that the next wave is going to capsize the boat or just destroy it altogether. And what do they do? They don't cry out in prayer. They go to Jesus. And they say, Lord, save us. When these men desperately need the intervention of God himself, they run to Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, and perhaps as we were reading about this storm on the Sea of Galilee, perhaps it reminded you at least a little bit about the account of the prophet Jonah. In the first chapter of the book of Jonah, a very similar scene is described. There's this man, Jonah, a prophet of God Most High. He's asleep on a boat. This cataclysmic storm arises, threatens to destroy the boat. And at that point, the ship's crew, none of whom were Jews, by the way, they awaken Jonah and they tell him to cry out to his God for deliverance. And to make a long story short, you all probably know it anyway, through Jonah's intercession, God calms the storm. Now, there are a number of parallels between that event and the event in our passage this evening. But what I want you to notice is this. In the book of Jonah, when God's servant needed God's intervention, 
He cried out to a God who filled the earth. In Matthew chapter 8, when God's servants need God's intervention, they reach across the boat and they touch a sleeping man whose power and whose glory filled the earth. Do you see the difference? In Matthew chapter 8, God is in the boat with His servants. He's delivering them from alongside them. His face is drenched with the same rain that's beating on their faces. God is with His people in a way like He never has been with them before. The men who are being thrown around in this boat, they've left behind them everything. They've made themselves nothing. They've given themselves entirely to Jesus. All of that sacrifice, all of that devotion seems only to have won them this course of peril and uncertainty. All the obedience has done has gotten them in the midst of a storm. But they're in the boat with the God whose voice bends creation. The one whose breath stops the wind. And makes the waves lay flat. Following the Lord Jesus means that you must leave behind everything that you know. And that you must surrender it all. But you surrender it all in order to have fellowship with the omnipotent God of heaven and earth. The God to whom the prophets had to cry out. But whom you have with you. And who in the Holy Spirit. You even have in you. Discipleship is costly. It costs everything. But it's glorious. It's the surrender of everything. For the God who is with you. The God whose voice stills the storm. Now if you take discipleship lightly. If you think it's an easy thing. Brothers and sisters you haven't counted the cost. But if you've judged that that cost is too great, if this evening in your mind you've struck on something that you are unwilling, that you are unable to surrender in order to pursue fully after Christ, then brothers and sisters, you haven't glimpsed the glory of the God who is with His disciples, who's in the wind and who's in the rain. Discipleship's costly, but it's glorious. Now, Brothers and sisters, I don't know most of you. I don't know what trials are battering you. I don't know what trials will assault you as you leave worship this evening. As you walk into new strife, new deprivation. I don't know what new hardship might ravage you because of your obedience to Jesus. But I do know this. God has brought that hardship into your life. Or He will bring it into your life. In order that everything else might fall away. And you might be captivated by the power and the beauty of Jesus. You see, when the winds listen to Jesus' voice. We realize that Jesus controls everything. Even the wind listens to Him. But what that means is that not only did Jesus stop the storm, but He brought it too. 
His authority didn't start when the disciples woke him up. He brought the storm. He brought the storm so that in the upheaval, in the darkness of the tempest, his disciples might see that he is God. And that there's no trial that can separate him from his people. They can trust him. They can trust the eternal God who knows the storm from the inside. And who's with them. That when God says in Isaiah chapter 43 verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When he says that, he means it. In your trial, today in the coming week. He wants you to see the same thing. Run to Jesus. Because he's there. He hasn't left. Don't let the ferocity of the waves make you forget that your Savior, the one for whom you have let everything go, He's with you. And the waves surge and the waves stand still at His command. And only at His command. Now in our day, the church wants to make discipleship look easy. We want to portray discipleship as if it's always rewarding, it's always pleasant. You know, truth be told, it's something that impinges really very little on your life. It doesn't impinge much on how you want to live or the choices that you want to make. But Jesus says that that kind of discipleship is a lie. It's the discipleship that leaves you on the shore of the Sea of Galilee while Jesus sails to the other side. To be a disciple of Jesus, you must make yourself nothing and give yourself entirely to the God who is with you. May we all be found true disciples, humble, devoted, and near to the God whom we serve. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father in heaven, we rejoice tonight and we give you thanks for the blessed Lord Jesus. He who became flesh and dwelt among us. He who knows our weakness, our frailty. We give you thanks for the Lord Jesus. That he who is Emmanuel, God with us. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would abide with us in the days that lie ahead. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would make us by your spirit to feel the nearness of Christ more and more deeply with each hour. And that we pray that you would grow us in our love for Jesus and our likeness to Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that in every way you would be strengthening your people in order that we might live lives of uprightness, lives that testify to a watching world that the blessed Lord Jesus, whom we love and serve, is more valuable than all the worlds. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would do these things, that you would deliver your servants, and that you would do so in such a way that each of us decreases, and the blessed Lord Jesus increases. Do what we ask, for we pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.